This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 12. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, we travel with a pair of journalists to four very different manufacturing cities with one thing in common. They make goods that people wear. The series is called Wear and Tear, and it's about the impact of the global leather and textile industries on workers, the economy, and the environment. The journalists are Debbie Price and Larry Price, and they join us now. Welcome. Hey, thank you, David. Thanks, David. Hi. So this is audio, of course, but a very big part of the story is visual. I'd like you to describe the first thing that Undark readers will see when they click on the first installment of your series. It's a photo of a woman crossing a footbridge, balancing a giant roll of red fabric on her head. Can you tell us about the scene? Well, sure. The project opens in the neighborhood of Hazarabah, which is... um in the heart of Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh. And, of course, this is the leather tanning district of Bangladesh where you have, oh, at least 150, perhaps more tanneries, and they produce about 90% of the country's leather. And the amazing thing about this area is that you can actually smell the Hazarabad district long before you you know, you arrive there. I mean, it's sort of like an overpowering mixture of a chemical smell and undeniable odor of rotting flesh. You know, I spent a couple of weeks, you know, photographing in and around that part of Dhaka. Of course, when you arrive there, you can definitely see, you know, the effects of the the tannery pollution. I, I was trying to find a sort of a summary image, you know, that combined all the elements of, you know, this uh, this massive pollution and the affluent from the from the tannery districts, and I finally, you know, I spent I spent several afternoons looking for just the right angle. You know, the people walking around. You see this uh, enormous canal that discharges hundreds and hundreds of thousands of gallons of affluent that flows into the Burabanga River, which is you know less than a mile away. And you know, the thing that that strikes me, of course, are these massive mounds of leather scraps that are piled you know, six, seven, eight feet high. At the same time, we're not just seeing scraps of leather and dead animal carcasses and so on. The very process that goes to make this leather is uh, pretty toxic, isn't it? Well, the the chemicals involved are, are, you know, the genesis of the toxicity. I mean, you've got, you know, all manner of... Um, of, of chemicals that mix together, and ultimately they flow through these channels into these open canals and ultimately into the river. But that river is now dead. You know, there, there's no fish, very little aquatic life that flows into that river. And it, you know, supplies, uh, you know, millions upon millions of people downstream, you know, with water that they drink, water that they use for their household, you know, chores. So these people are, are literally drinking and swimming and bathing, you know, in this toxic, you know, bath of affluent, you know, from, from the tannery. You know, most importantly, the, the chromium compounds that are used in the tanning process are some of the most, you know, volatile and toxic chemicals, you know, involved in the, in the tanning process. And what about the workers, like the woman with the red bundle on her head? What kind of exposure are they getting? 
Well, the workers generally, they don't have the protection that you would imagine. Men are working around these machines that, you know, stretch hides, cut hides. In some cases, you know, injuries are common. But most importantly, it's sort of the exposure of uh, the workers and their skins. You know, they're barefooted for the most part, or they'll work in, uh, you know, the ubiquitous flip-flops. In some cases, they'll wade in vats of, you know, chemicals, you know, to pull the skins in and out of the, of the chemical vats. And almost all of them will have these, you know, lesions and cracks. One worker told me that unless his hands were wet, that he couldn't close his hands because his skin would crack constantly. You know, one of the photographs that's stunning to me is of a man who's actually inside a drum that tumbles the rawhides and chromium and other chemicals. And so he's, he climbed, they climb into, and they're basically bathing themselves in these, these chemicals and um, does terrible damage to their skin, and they're inhaling the fumes, and they have problems from that. It's pretty shocking from just from a human rights standpoint but as you write, the, the leather and tanning industry is hugely important to the economy of Bangladesh, isn't it? What is, what is the government doing about these kinds of kind of basic violations of uh, worker and environmental safety? Well, one of the, the impetuses for the story is that Hazarabagh now is going through a change. And for 14 years, the government has been trying to move the tanners out to an industrial park, and they've had various court orders to do it, and it's been delayed, delayed, delayed. So there's this move underway to move the tanneries into an area where there'll be a central effluent treatment facility, which hopefully they'll be able to stop polluting the water that way. But as uh, Richard Pierce House with Human Rights Watch told us, he said, if they don't do something about worker conditions, they're just moving the problem from Hazarabagh to this other area, which is called Savar. So far, the government has, has really not enforced any kind of worker regulations or environmental regulations or child labor regulations. They've, they've basically turned a blind eye to that and even openly admitted it um, to Human Rights Watch saying, you know, we can't until we move to Savar. So, there is a great need for enforcement once the tanneries get to Savar to prevent children from working in this very dangerous industry, to ensure that the chemicals are captured and the waste is treated, and to ensure that workers are protected wearing gear and you know that their conditions aren't so hazardous. Let's step back now and talk about the big idea for the series. How did you get interested in the first place? And when you started, did you have any idea about the eventual scope of this project? Well, I've been working, um, you know, for a few years sort of in the environmental pollution sector. And there was a, a report in 2013 authored by the international NGO uh, Green Cross International, and they, they placed the leather tanning industry on their top 10 list of industries, you know, that pollute widely worldwide. So... I was sort of interested in that. I started doing some research, and I decided that the areas of East India and Bangladesh, you know, represented, you know, some of the the more egregious examples of that, and certainly were considered among the, you know, the world's most polluted regions. Well, I think Tom Zeller deserves a lot of credit too, because um, Larry had these pollution pieces looking at at India and and Bangladesh with the leather industry and the Sitaram River with the textiles industry. And Tom 
we talked about it, and he, he really kind of helped us connect the dots and say, well, what's happened in the United States correspondingly? And the story became one that looked at both the pollution problems and the, the impact of globalization and how those two are very closely connected. And then, as you know, we, we looked at what's happened in New York with the tannery industry and what's happened in North Carolina with the textiles industry. Yes, let's uh, go to Gloversville, New York. Um, when I was in middle school in upstate New York, we had to memorize the leading industries in a bunch of cities, and Gloversville was easy. The namesake. The namesake. Gloversville, named uh, for the glove-making industry. And, uh, of course, there was a corresponding tannery industry, which was very strong, as you know, in upstate New York for 100 years. And toward the 70s, the glove industry started declining because of basically offshoring. And then in the 80s, the tannery industry, which had been in, in somewhat of decline because decreased demand because the gloves are now being made overseas, the EPA and the Clean Water Act, which were passed in the 70s, began to be implemented. And the tanneries um, were basically told they had to install their own effluent treatment systems, which were very, very expensive. So a lot of the tanneries that were already having a hard time just couldn't do it, and they closed. And within a very few short years, this industry that had been enormous in this part of the world almost disappeared. And there are few tanneries left today in Gloversville and a few that hung on and, and managed to survive. But it, it really was a, a massive shift for this community. I've never actually been to Gloversville, although I, you know, I got it right on the test. But you make it sound a lot like Detroit, the city that was once uh, just a one-industry town that was a, a hugely booming economy. Then it went bust, and now it's kind of fitfully coming back with specialty industries and different kinds of uh, activities that add up to, to at least some kind of revival. Is that how we should look at a place like this? Well, I, I think that's true, yes. And there's some there's some smaller leather businesses that are still there tanning, colonial tanning that we, we talk about, and they do very specialty, high-end deerskin and bison. And then there's a, a leather finishing company that does, they take the tan leather and they paint it and they apply patterns to it for designers that want it for furniture or whatever. And so they're making a go of it with really high-quality custom work. And then there's this uh, glove factory that's been there a long time that actually was formed by people from other glove factories that, that went out of business, Samco. And they make 100,000 leather gloves for the military every year. And they're still doing it by hand mostly, and they're beautifully sewn and very high quality. So the, the surviving tanning and glove industries are doing specialty work that's very high quality. Then the, the county's diversifying. They've got a Faye yogurt plant and a Walmart distribution center and a, a Spanish sausage plant, chorizo. So they're, it's kind of different. They're bringing the food industries in because they have now clean water. They always had a lot of water, but it was polluted back in the day, and now it's it's very clean, and it's, it's really good for these industries. Um, and the the center of the city, they've got a pretty ambitious plan to revitalize the downtown area and and revitalize the neighborhoods surrounding to create kind of a walking community. So there, there's some stuff going on that's encouraging. And But they've really had to, as Vincent DeSantos, one of the city council members, said, they've had to bootstrap themselves back up. You know, they they had a, a very vibrant industry that disappeared, and now they're, they're bringing, bringing it back themselves with new ways of doing it. 
And I was able to photograph inside a couple of the tanneries that are still operating there and inside Samco, the glove factory. I mean, one of the amazing things about that operation is that process is very similar to the, you know, the overseas process. But of course, it's it's much more environmentally friendly. You know, there's there's no affluent. It's all contained, you know, and dealt with, of course, according to EPA regulations and so forth. The third and fourth stops in your series are in Indonesia and North Carolina. The industry is different, but the trajectory you describe is very much the same. Uh, the Industrial Revolution brings mass production of consumer goods and dominates the economy and the identity of cities and towns in the U.S., uh, like uh, like Gloversville. And then as labor becomes more expensive and the government requires companies to clean up the messes they've made, the industry migrates to other parts of the globe where it's less expensive to do business and the cycle seems to start all over again. Is history just doomed to repeat itself all over the developing world? So far, we are seeing a lot of repeated history. Uh, one of the tanners that, that I talked to said the best thing we could do is export our regulations. And if we export our regulations and our know-how and our technology to clean up these places, then we can we can not only we can support American industry because then it's not as cheap to go abroad and dump, and then we help the people who live in these communities because we're not turning their neighborhoods into cesspools. So I think the awareness is very important. The more the American consumer knows about what goes on, the more they can demand that their products be produced responsibly and ethically and environmentally sound ways. Sure, there's certainly hope. In India, for instance, um, you know, in Kolkata, they, they've been successful in moving the tanning operations, you know, out of the deep urban environments and to remote, you know, facilities that are more environmentally, you know, conscious. So, you know, that's a start. Well, this is such an instructive story that our partner, the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, has built a lesson plan for middle and high school students around part one. And you can find that at pulitzercenter.org. Meanwhile, Debbie and Larry Price's story is at undark.org. And as great as this podcast is, it really demands to be seen and read. Debbie and Larry, thanks so much for doing the story and taking the time to tell our listeners about it. Thank, Thank you, you, David. Now we're joined by Seth Manukin, who covers media and science for the Undark podcast. Seth, kind of a slow month, huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think just as everyone expected, uh, for those of us involved either in the media or in science, the first month of the Trump administration has given us all a lot of free time because of the lack of stories. Yeah, my, my eyelids have been <laughs> snapping shut. So I wanted to start out by asking you about an event that uh, happened right here in Boston uh, the other weekend. Uh, it was a rally tied to the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is a, a big annual meeting, uh, more than 8,000 scientists here in, in Boston. There was a rally in Copley Square with uh, hundreds of scientists uh, protesting some of the news that's coming out of Washington, and, and it was kind of a lead-up to the big march 
for science that's being planned for uh, Earth Day, April 22nd in Washington. Um, so here's my question to you. Is this kind of newfound activism, is this a danger for scientists? Are, are these kinds of expressions a threat to the absolute empiricism that scientists are supposed to strive for? You know, I think that's a tough question. And you could answer both yes and no. You know, certainly a lot of people supporting the march in Boston or talking about the march in Washington are talking about it under the rhetoric of, you know, supporting empiricism, supporting fact-based inquiry. And, you know, on the face of it, it would appear that someone could support facts and not have that be a political statement. One of the things that I guess concerned me a little bit about the march in Boston was that I, I wasn't entirely sure what they were marching against, which is to say the Trump administration has, as of yet, not cut funding to the NIH, you know, not announced that they're going to close down any of the institutes of medicine. You know, th there have been some things going on at the EPA, which are potentially alarming. But even those, I think at this point, are more potentially alarming than outright alarming. You know, that, that's not to say that there are not lots of areas of concern, starting with the new head of the EPA, the number of people involved in Trump's administration who are climate deniers, including potentially the president himself. But I think that what this march risked doing is setting up a conflict of science versus the administration. And if there's one thing Trump has shown, it's that he's incredibly thin-skinned and, and holds grudges. And so if this sort of narrative is created early on that their scientists are somehow opposed to the administration, I'm not sure that that's going to serve their interests well in the long term. As we've said before on the podcast, scientists and journalists are, are kind of in the same line of work. That is, we, we look at facts and evidence uh, to try to make sense of the world. So I'm wondering if uh, what you just said about scientists could equally be said about, about uh, the news media. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's been over the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot written about this very issue about objectivity and impartiality and the relationship therein about personal identity and the sort of ideals of Amer of American journalism about the right or ability of journalists to participate in protest marches and I, I guess my feeling is that the sort of very pat answers that are being offered by either side are not very convincing to me. You know, the the idea that journalists should never make their views on current events clear seems ridiculous. And especially in a climate in which facts, which are what journalists ideally deal in, are in contention, I think it's appropriate for journalists to very loudly proclaim that they are on the side of facts. At the same time, I do think that it is important to strive for impartiality and objectivity. Um, you know, what's tricky right now is there are a lot of issues that have come to the forefront that almost feel like moral issues. And 
it's hard to know what is appropriate in that case for journalists to publicly speak out about. You know, a lot of people, myself included, think that it's morally wrong to close our borders to refugees whose lives are being threatened in their home countries. And this is a, a sort of bedrock of, of American democracy. That's fine. What I can do in my reporting is point to empirical evidence that also shows the ways that that is damaging to the country in terms of a potential brain drain, in terms of the benefits that the U.S. experienced after World War II when we were a refuge for scientists from all over the world and before World War II. So, you know, I, I don't think it would necessarily be appropriate for me to say the Trump administration's immigration policies are morally bankrupt. But I do think it would be appropriate for me to highlight the ways in which they are also factually bankrupt. And I think that's totally appropriate for journalists to do. There's been quite a lot of research uh, lately about kind of how to approach these questions where uh, so much depends on facts and evidence, on truth versus falsehood. And some studies uh, reach the interesting and I think quite counterintuitive conclusion that it doesn't always help to marshal facts when you want to persuade somebody who comes to the opposite conclusion that that you do, uh, that, that somehow facts are not the most crucial thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those findings that I think seems potentially counterintuitive at first blush, but then as soon as you start to dig down a little bit, it, it makes a fair amount of sense. It, one person who I think has been way ahead of the curve on this and has been doing really both important and fascinating research on this for years is Dan Kahan at, at Yale. His work is on cultural cognition and how someone's cultural affiliations may have more to do with where they stand on various issues than other things, including the factual information that they're, that they're given. You know, also, it, this is something that I found to be very true in my writing about vaccines. And a reason for that is that if you believe in a conspiracy theory, any evidence that is offered up against that conspiracy theory is only going to be taken as proof of the conspiracy by the people who believe that. So if you believe that you know, CNN and The New York Times and NBC are fake news and they're putting forth a non-fact-based agenda. When you then continually cite stories from mainstream media outlets showing that A or B is a fact, that's just going to be taken as further evidence of, of, of those places' dishonesty by people who believe in what's coming out of Infowars or Breitbart. And, you know, that presents a real challenge. And I think it's kind of foundation shaking in some ways to a lot of us who truck in facts. And, you know, I think one thing that we will see over the next couple of years is what strategies are effective for reaching people with whom you disagree on a seemingly fact-based issue. You know, there's some evidence that empathy and talking to people about their views and how they're formed might be more successful than just throwing facts at them. But there has not been enough to, to, to say anything with any degree of, of certainty there. Yeah, perhaps a much harder job to figure out uh, where your audience lives and uh, to try to meet them there. 
I mean, I think, you know, one way to combat this is on a political level. You know, I've been astounded by the cowardice that elected officials have shown in the face of some of what's happening in the Trump administration. And I think it's something that is going to come back and, and haunt us all. But if politicians made clear that there are such things as facts, that just because, you know, the New York Times might write uh, a story that they do not agree with on a political level, that does not mean that that they are dishonest. I think, you know, changing the rhetoric coming out of politicians could go a long way. And by the same token, I don't foresee InfoWars changing its tactics, but someplace like Fox News, which I think increasingly is sort of straddling the line between being a legitimate news organization and trucking in what is essentially fake news. There are an enormous number of incredibly skilled and passionate journalists who work there. And if news organizations like that took a firmer stance, I think that could that could be pretty impactful as well. I don't necessarily see that happening in the near future, unfortunately. Seth Mnookin covers media and science for the Undark podcast. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, and he's the director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Seth, thanks a lot. If you've ever stayed in a hospital, you might have choked down some mushy, flavorless meals, or you might have been pleasantly surprised. Many hospitals put a lot of effort into what they feed people. The push to improve hospital food isn't just about customer satisfaction. It actually connects modern nutrition science with very ancient healing practices. Though food preparation is almost invisible to patients in today's high-tech facilities, it's still an essential medical function. For a behind-the-scenes view of this hidden work, Alicia Puglianisi takes us into a sub-sub-basement of Johns Hopkins Hospital in East Baltimore. Thank you for calling Food Service. Tyrese speaking. How may I help you? Tyrese Curtis works two stories below the street in the cavernous network of supply tunnels underneath Johns Hopkins Hospital. The location is kind of, you have no windows, no circulation. But other than that, like the people are good that you're working with. Curtis is a nutrition assistant. When an inpatient or family member picks up their bedside phone to ask for a meal, they connect to her office. Okay, I have a regular diet. What would you like to get for the patient? Uh, a beef broth. Okay. Chicken broth, mama. Super. Near super. Nina light. Chickeny beef. Okay. We'll do beef broth. Okay. The call sets in motion a chain of events that stretches across multiple city blocks. The hospital's two kitchens prepare three meals a day for up to 1,100 inpatients. Hopkins offers an array of options, from meatballs to sushi. Not all hospitals can afford to channel resources towards diversifying their menu or sourcing quality ingredients. But the chefs at Hopkins have kept costs down by cutting back on waste. They want to shed the old stereotype of boring hospital food. Right now, their breakfast requests printed on paper slips, are traveling through a maze of steaming vats and cooking stations. Let's say it's very organized unconfusion. 
Sean Fields is an executive chef at the hospital. This is a 100-gallon kettle, uh, soup kettle there. Every day, he and his staff tend to complicated diseases, allergies, and dietary restrictions. Where they're from, their age, how long their illness is. As a chef, for me, I found this more rewarding. I know this is going to the patients and it's helping part of the healing process. Most of us have heard plenty about the connection between nutrition and health. But today's high-tech drugs and surgeries that rescue people from the brink of death overshadow the medical significance of food. For Fields, the ordinary act of eating shapes everything before and after those crisis moments. The medical staff will tell you that you know when they eat, they, they, they heal, they heal, they go home. That wisdom goes back to the most ancient medicine. Long before pharmaceutical cures for typhoid or tuberculosis, doctors prescribed specific preparations of food at specific times to strengthen their patients and combat disease. A lot of what was healthcare in the period I study was a kind of expectant watching and waiting and care for the body of the patient to, in effect, support that patient through the episode of illness. Mary Fussell, a historian at Johns Hopkins University, studies English medicine of the 1600s. In those times, and until the mid-19th century, people believed that the four humors, yellow bile, black bile, blood, and phlegm, explained why they got sick. What you eat is processed by your body into these fundamental four components of your body, the four humors. So if you want to change the balance of how the humors are, you can change the diet. The greatest doctors of Renaissance Europe mastered this balancing act. Physician William Bolaine's 1559 medical treatise, The Government of Health, includes a guide to meal planning based on a patient's humors, temperature, and the season. Bolaine, though, would not have gotten his hands dirty in the kitchen. In terms of who's doing it, it's mostly the women of the household. Paintings, prints, and sketches from the Middle Ages through the 1800s depict scenes of healing in which women, family members, or hired nurses prepare and deliver essential nourishment. And here we see the contrast between the physician who comes and goes. Fussell pulls out a copy of a black and white woodcut print from 1562 that shows a physician paying a house call to a sick nobleman. The patient is confined to bed with a surly look on his face. The physician, his back is turned. He's not even looking at the patient. He's looking at the urine. And he's clearly, he's got his outdoor cape on. He's going to leave again. She's the one that's doing the real work of healing, which is the dietary part. Fussell points to the other caregiver in the room, hidden in plain sight at the patient's bedside. We see the woman carrying this dish of some kind of gruel that she's going to feed to the sick guy. Fussell studies what went unrecorded and uncelebrated in the work of these female healers. They shared traditional knowledge and recipes that probably saved many more lives than the elite doctors of their time. Just a little heavy cream, egg wash, and uh, cheese on top. Back in the Hopkins Hospital kitchen, Chef Zachary Carter fills a late breakfast order. He's working fast but carefully. And you gotta understand, you have to have a, a special place to take care of the patient. Because I know if I had family in here, I wouldn't want anybody to just throw something together and put it on a plate for them. When everything is running smoothly, patients might not think twice about how their food arrives freshly made or why the hospital feeds them certain things and not others. In the obscurity of the call center, Tyrese Curtis uses a computerized system 
to pull up the profiles of patients she will never meet and make sure that their food choices match the doctor's assessment of what their bodies need. The pork sausage is something that they want and they can't have. Gently talking a cardiac patient out of that pork sausage is a small but important piece of how the hospital takes care of people. Americans tend to see caring work as less valuable than that of neurosurgeons or cancer researchers, but Professor Fassell sees it as the foundation of medicine. Much of the work of caretaking in the history of healing is what is unspoken, and it isn't written down because it's just normal everyday work. It's women's work. It's not worth writing about. Nutritionists, chefs, and food workers at the hospital spend every day translating their care and expertise into meals that travel from the basement kitchen to the bedsides of people from around the world who have come in search of the latest that modern medicine has to offer. For Undark, I'm Alicia Polinisi. John McCone produced that story. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler, and we had help from radio station WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. <laughs>